the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, broadcasting here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Spring doesn't really feel like it's in the air and the news is pretty relentless, so maybe it's time to find the places that we can escape to. Most both on the big screen and the small, in a cinema or from the comfort of your own sofa. So here we are for the next hour. Enjoy the opinions of our critics, but then feel free to make your own minds up. I'm Emma Marchant, back in the host chair, and joining me to share their opinions today are Vicky Eyre. Hello. Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. Stuart Pask. Hello. And briefly, Yossi Osman. Hello. Up for review today, we have both the big and the small. Robert Pattinson dons the cowl and the ears, but hopefully not the plastic nipples, in Matt Reeves' incarnation of The Batman. Peter Dinklage shuns the prosthetic nose, but adopts singing, if you can call it that, for Cyrano. Helen Mirren and Jim Broadbent are unlikely robbers in True Story, The Duke. Dave Grohl and the rest of the Foo Fighters have cooked up their own rock hour in Studio 666. And we touch on romance with Ali and Ava finding love second time around. We also have an interview with the team behind the UK's biggest student film festival, Water Sprite, which is on right now. So much cinema today. So let's get straight on to this and see how things are doing in Gotham. Police! Hands up! West, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, Christian Bale, Ben Affleck. To that list, let us add Twilight alum and emo king Robert Pattinson as yet another incarnation of Bruce Wayne. Trouble billionaire by day, vigilante Batman by night. Matt Reeves' Back to Basics version has Batman teaming up with Lieutenant Gordon, played by Jeffrey Wright, to hunt down the sadistic serial killer the Riddler throwing Catwoman and even the Penguin and there really should be enough to keep any Bat fan happy for the near three hour running time Stuart as resident huge comic book fan I'm going to come to you first and the first question I think many people and I indeed asked this as well before I saw it is did we really need this reboot is it bringing anything fresh or is it just washing the taste of Batfleck from our mouths I think it's a, it's a fair question. Um, I think there have been uh, uh, a lot of... Batman on cinema is heavily saturated, I think. I think you might think that they've done everything they can with it. But the reality is is that there's so much source material to draw from. And, and the great thing about this film is the fact that they seem to be reverting back to a very early Batman. Like you saw in the comments, in there's, uh, there's, a, there's a Batman comic story arc called Batman Year One. And whilst technically this is more like Batman Year Two in the film, it does depict a very early rendition of the character. He's only been a vigilante for a very short period of time, and you really see that over the course of the film. He's a he's not the polished techno whiz Batman you see in all of the modern iterations. He's a very sort of rough and tumble. You see he's still not quite getting things right. He's still 
the detective Batman that you don't really see so much on the fil- in films. And, and I think that's what, one of the things that really sells it. And I think possibly the fact that it's a detective story sort of is a justification as to why it's almost three hours long, because it's, it, you've got all those elements to play with over the course of the narrative. Excellent. Um, Lorcan, I'm not going to lie, I wasn't really aware of Matt Reeve, who directed this at all before this, but you did proclaim yourself a big fan of his work, so you were very excited for this. How do you think he's dealt with this? I mean, this is a really big canvas for him, obviously. This is a big movie. It's a big release. How do you think he dealt with it? Um, well, I mean, I, mean I, don't, I, I don't really know much of his stuff before he kind of became a blockbuster kind of guy, but I know he's, he went into the Planet of the Apes franchise and he managed to revitalise that into what could have been a silly monkey movie into something that's genuinely really drenched in drama and lots of of really clever action that's very engaging and also very long as he's carried over to this film. But I never got much of his own personal voice, whereas this film is co-written with someone else. Um, But this is very much... I was shocked at how singular a vision this was i've said before like stuff like shang chi and black widow i just i cannot stand but whenever you you have an act a filmmaker who's clearly bringing themselves across and was allowed to do the things they wanted to do it's wonderful and that's exactly what this is at the same time he brings in a lot of the best elements that have been carried through all of the Batman, like this one is a homage to all of them. It's got like Tim Burton's gothicness. It's got Joel Schumacher's kind of all the spaces are extravagant and way too big for purpose. Uh, you've got the kind of gritty realism at times with the um, the Christian Bale one. And then there's even like a phenomenal car chase um, that I think drew a lot from the Batman vs. Superman, kind of the one good scene in that film. Um, but now I think Matt Reeves has done a wonderful job and I hope he's sticks with the franchise you kind of actually i was going to ask vicky that i was going to talk about the production design but you kind of you, you talked about it for me which was fabulous but i would say um vicky how did you feel how did robert pattinson were you a big fan before you are of oh, yeah. a generation I, yeah. I i really feel it's a generational thing with robert pattinson because i was even when i went to go and see essay even when i was buying my drink with the guys in the picture house and they were like we love robert and I was like, I just don't get it. I'm now slightly, I'm, I'm, I now have changed my mind about it, but I think it's a generational thing. Did you really enjoy him as Batman? I really did. I think um, Aurora Panson, I think apart from Twilight, which is most, his most noted role throughout the general public, he has really built himself up a good portfolio of films throughout the past year. He's like an indie darling. He plays, these characters are just like very strange. In interviews, he says he likes to play freaks, and then, but Batman's apparently his biggest freak role. Uh, but you know he has done his best to lose that image I think because it's in the art cinema realm not a lot of people have seen his like capacity of acting I mean even but in, he's playing the Batman and there's not a lot of speech I mean there's not he's doing a really good job of the role but it's quite a, a reclusive role in that but I still think he, he did a really good job of it yeah I mean speaking as someone who's a bit of a Robert Patton sceptic having only really known him from Twilight and mm. I, I will sp- speak plainly and say I am not a fan of those films. They do not interest me in the slightest. And I think for him to come and sort of really bring his presence to the the Batman role and to really own it and really give it the sort of... It is a bit emo, but it's it's the gritty emo that we sort of come to know from Batman. We know he's emo emo because of the tragedy in his life and Bruce Wayne's parents, etc., etc. And I think he actually knocks it out of the park. Yeah, I think, because you were talking about it being a personal vision by Matt Reeve, Lorcan. I also quite like the fact that this is a very, this is quite a, 
personal story. You, in fact, you said that as well, Stuart, like bringing in, in as a sort of sole detective story. Because actually the Riddler in this is not, until the very end, he's not really focused on on huge damage or, or affecting, you know, the whole world. He is, he's, he's going after, you know, crooked cops and shady politicians. There is, you know, the cast in this, it, it has got so many great actors in it. Did anybody, we, we've got Zoe Kravitz as Celia Carl Catwoman, you've got Paul Dano as the Riddler, um, Andy Serkis is playing is playing Alfred, John Chichuro I loved as Carmine Falcone, small, t- tiny, tiny role for Peter Sarsgaard. Who stood out for you guys, other than Robert Pattinson, obviously? There was like the exact moment where I realised that they chose Paul Dano's. I love him anyway. I think he plays like the best like bad people in films. If like like in like there will be blood, he's incredible. But as soon as they there's a scene and um, it's where that you treat. He's not dressed up as the Riddler. He's just himself, and he's like this shy shy character because they're going to develop him you can tell towards the end they're going to like make him turn really mean but you just see like the shy Paul Dano but he's done these terrible things and I'm like they've chosen him so well for this he is perfect he was my favorite I think um for me well, I, I echo what Vicky says. I think Paul Dano is my Robert Pattinson in a lot of ways. Um, but I think Colin Farrell is... Um, I, 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 one part of me doesn't want Colin Farrell to be stunt-casted as this irascible monster all the time, but he's so funny as playing these irascible monsters. Um, and he, he kind of blends into his like kind of bodysuit really well, and he um, he's a highlight for the scenes that he's in as well. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. I mean, he's genuinely unrecognisable in this, and I think that's a lot to do with his skill and craft as well as... As well as um, yeah, as, as, as well as excellent prosthetics. Um, okay, Stuart, any last words? I just agree with Lorcan and say that Colin Farrell's as I didn't even notice until I read the IMD afterwards that he was playing the role. Um, I didn't go in and do my homework beforehand, but the fact that he's in a fat suit the entire time and really owns the character really sort of took me away. But seriously, the Batman, great film, great addition to the franchise. It brings something different to the table. Go see it. Just just to say as a last point as well, definitely try and catch it in the cinemas where you can because the sound is beyond belief. The sound design in this film is incredible. Yeah, the soundtrack as well, the constant soundtrack in the back because it does bring... And I enjoyed the fact it was a whole meld of kind of genres as well. It felt superhero, but it also felt like there is some kind of noir about it. There is that 30s sort of, like you say, hardball detective feel about it. It's a lot mixed into one. I thought it was a really, really interesting take on this. And I'm happy to see, while I'm judging this from the very end, that there is obviously they're leading towards a next one. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, yeah, that is The Batman, and it is showing everywhere, both in IMAX and in Standard. It is unusually for an action movie. It is a Certificate 15 for some pretty full-on brutal violence, I would say, but not very much swearing. So, yeah, go enjoy. Right, let's have a complete change of pace and mood and take ourselves off to 1960s Newcastle. Will the defendant please stand? Kempton Bunton, you were charged that on the 21st of March 1961, you stole from the National Gallery a priceless portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco José de Goya. Not very good, is it? We're convinced that the Goya has been stolen by a highly professional international criminal gang. Mind your boomers! Almost certainly a trained commando. You're right. Bitter biscuit. One problem 
What's that? Your mother. I can explain. I'm shaking. It's the shock. Shock, yes, I'm shocked. There's a stolen masterpiece in my wardrobe. What's he actually... The Duke is director Roger Mitchell's final film prior to his death last September. Jim Broadbent stars in his true life story of Kempton Burbank real name, love it, a Geordie pensioner cab driver, passionate about free TV licences for OAPs, who in 1961 took a two-day trip to London and ended up stealing a Goya portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery. From the National Gallery. Vicky, this is sort of set in a period of, of an era of UK history which is still feeling post-war austerity, but it's on the brink of the swinging 60s. We're watching this in 2022, what did it speak to you from this era? Is it is, is it anything more than just a sort of charming character piece? I think everyone should know right now that I'm I'm from Newcastle and it's my home. And just watching this film warmed my heart. And you say obviously I know it's from a period that maybe I don't relate to, but my grandparents have talked about it from that time, especially from the cold north. And uh, I just feel like I could have experienced what they might have seen in those times. Um, apart from maybe the accents, I think that was a, a different part of that film where I definitely haven't heard that before. Lorcan, a little like his best-known film, Notting Hill, I, this is what I felt watching it anyway, is this just a case of putting well-known actors, because as well as Jim Broadbent, you know, who is a national treasure, and we also have trademark national treasure Dame Helen Mirren in this as well, playing his wife. Is this just a case of putting these very well-known starry actors into place and making us feel sort of cosy about ye old blighty and, and the, you know... I think that that's definitely the cynical approach. I think uh, that I, I would agree with that. It's a, it's, a, it's a very lazy film, I thought. It's a very lazy script. Uh, I mean, Helen Mirren's character may as well have just been called wife, like, because <laughs> she she's just kind of there to be, like... The kind of nagging housewife is not a very unflattering role for Helen Mirren, I didn't think. Um, but it's it's very much not made for me. It's very much, it's lazy, but it's engineered specifically for a, a certain crowd that might be above a certain age. Um, uh, Finn Whitehead, I thought was pretty good. I thought he was kind of the standout to hold his weight against these kind of other heavy hitters like broadband, etc. Uh, Matthew Good shows up. I think Matthew Good's making a career out of showing up at the tail end of uh, films targeted at octogenarians, which is kind of cute. Um, but he's very charming and funny. But I think it's just... I, I feel like I could have left the cinema for 10, 20 minutes and I wouldn't have really missed much. It's a very kind of lackadaisical, soft touch, I think. Vicky, I think you liked it more, didn't you? So, I mean, this is, to be fair, I believe it's packing them in, isn't it, Lorcan, as our... Oh, it's the the target demos coming in for sure. Yeah, <laughs> it, would that be the grey pound by any chance? They're, they're, they're coming in and they are having such a good time. I have had so many conversations over this past week of just people generally having like a, like coming out so happy, saying they're kind of a great day after watching this. Saying so, like, just constant feedback and feed, like they want to come out and talk about how much they enjoyed it. I feel like this is generally the feel good film at the moment, and I'm really happy it is. Do you think the Target demo, as, as, as you stated, do they remember this? Was this a well-known story at the time? I must admit, I'd never, ever heard of it. I, I know, I, like, getting that customer feedback, they've just mentioned that. They, it's kind of, it was kind of downplayed but at the time, but it is, like, a really interesting... I think it's quite fun, like, the fact that someone did steal a masterpiece and got away with it. And uh, I think it's a really good... 
I think Lorca mentioned, but like Finn Whitehead, he does bring like kind of a really good perspective to it. And I, I've loved him in things like Dunkirk and Black Mirror, and I feel like it's really nice to see him back on the screen again. That's great. I also saw Anna Maxwell Martin pop up in this, um, and I enjoyed her. She had a very I thought her I thought her um soft Newcastle Burr was an excellent accent, having really only seen her in Motherland. And I realised that she was in fact married to um she was married to the director, Roger Mitchell, which I didn't realise they were married for a long time. They they had split up when he died. But um yeah, I it I don't really know what to say about it. I'm, I'm surprised it's getting the absolute critical acclaim it's getting, to be fair, because I looked on, on Metacritic and I was, I, was, I was a bit baffled by the fact it's sort of 81 or something. People are loving it. But I guess you are seeing two of our favourite actors, UK actors, in Helen Mirren and Jim Broadbent at the top of their game. And it's hard not to love Jim Broadbent in anything. Oh, sure. I think, I think Vicky, Vicky says right. It's like, it's a very surprising story and it, um, there's a lot of kind of intrigue and there's lots of room. Like, it's a pensioner who steals a masterpiece and like a political, and kind of like a very subdued political protest. Um, but I think that's, there's room there for, to have something that's uh, kind of more appealing and like if you really put your thought into it you can have something that'll kind of appeal to everyone I always think movies should be universal in a sense because you're going to make more money if more people want to watch and you can be able to sway minds etc etc but I think this film's so so dedicated to that one audience like the humour uh, is very dated humor. Maybe a lot of critics just like the kind of throwback to like the, the simpler time with the simpler film so I, I'm not sure I'd appreciate that uh that kind of choice as being particularly valid. I don't think there was some, such a time as like a simpler time. It's just a very soft touch kind of saving Mr. Banks type movie that makes you feel that the past was kind of this kind of nice cozy place, especially when you cast these particular people. Um, but I, it, it, it comes across as kind of phony, but like like we've established, it's it's made for an audience and that audience are really enjoying it. So that's great. Um, it's just very much not for me. <laughs> I didn't really feel it was very much for me either. Anyway, I think that, and, it, and it's and it's a, a zippy running time of an hour and a half as well. So if you haven't got three hours plus to spend watching the Batman, then you could always take yourself off to go and see the Duke. It's a certificate twelve A, and it's showing at the Picture House, the Light, and the View. Right, you're listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio and it's time to move on to some local film activity. Since 2008, the Water Sprite Festival has celebrated the most groundbreaking student films worldwide. It's happening right here in Cambridge this weekend and online and Cambridge Film Show regular host and reviewer Yossi Osman spoke to Majola Akiyemi to find out a little bit more about this year's festival. This is the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 and we're really excited today to have an interview with Majola Akinyemi who is Head of Communications at Water Sprite Film Festival which is happening right this weekend and there's loads of great stuff celebrating student filmmakers which you can get involved in. So hello Majola, welcome today. Hiya, thank you for having me on. Not a problem at all. So you're here to talk about Water Sprite. And for our listeners who might not know what Water Sprite Film Festival is, can you give us a little bit of information? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, Water Sprite is one of the um, largest student film festivals in the world. It's the largest one in the UK and Ireland. And um, every March for the past, I think, 13 years, we've been celebrating student films um, right here in Cambridge. So this year we were lucky enough to get, I think, 1,400 films from 100 different countries. And um, we've selected 44 of the best student short films to 
um, displaying our screenings over the weekend. And we also have lots of really exciting masterclasses and workshops with industry professionals. And um, best of all, everything is completely free with an optional donation towards Sprite as a charity. There's a packed programme. We'll talk a little bit about some of your events um, that you've got coming up in shortly, but um, tell us a little bit about the film screenings and what kind of things people can expect to see. Yeah, so um, with film screenings, we have them going on um, throughout the weekend, which is very exciting. Um, they're categorised into different kind of um, overarching themes. So, for example, we've got one on Saturday at 1.30 p.m. called Fighting for Hope, which is quite cool. And then we've got one on, again, at 3.30 on Saturday called Something Extraordinary, which is also quite fun. So there's like lots of different kind of fun ways that we, we've, um, all the awards team have like grouped the screenings together. Um, and uh, there will be the screenings for the winning films on Sunday at 12.30 as well. So the winners from all the categories, because um, we have, I think, 12 or so different categories where we have winners for films, um, they will all be screened on the Sunday. So that's really exciting. Super. And people can buy tickets for those that they're still available yeah. for Sunday, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. People are able to purchase tickets on our Eventbrite page and you can also find this through our website as well if you go on um, watersprite.org.uk. Let's talk a little bit about some of the events that you've go got going on. I mean, I've, I've had a look at some of the names of people that you've got supporting you. You've obviously had Kate Heron, who's the director of Loki and Sex Education. You've got the team behind Two Daughters, the BBC documentary, Stacey Dooley, Emeritus, Archdeacon and Mina Smallman, and just so many brilliant people who are supporting you with this festival. Tell us a little bit about your programme of events and how you've managed to get these awesome people joining you for the festival. Yeah, so we um, are so excited for our programme of events because whilst Water Sprite is completely about the nominees and we're so excited to celebrate their wonderful student films, part of Water Sprite is also making film um, and the industry kind of more accessible and bringing that love of film to lots of people. So I know myself, I first got involved in the first year just by attending and doing a couple of interviews here and there and I realised how amazing it was to get so involved. So this year we've got some brilliant events, as you said, for some really wonderful people. Um, and um, so, for example, we've got um, Isra Brown, who was the intimacy coordinator uh, for lots and lots of shows, such as It's a Sin and I May Destroy You, which is very exciting. She's coming on Saturday at 3.15. Um, we've also got some screenwriting workshops with Alistair Petrie from Sex Education and Matthew Parkhill as well. And as you said, we've got the makes of Two Daughters in. Um, we've got... Um, just such a wonderful, wonderful array of events, such as, um, and they're quite diverse as well. So, for example, we have Akua Gyamfi, who's the founder of the British Blacklist, kind of um, a channel that manages to promote um, diverse kind of perspectives in the film and creative industries in the UK. Um, how we manage to get these is that we have the most wonderful events team, and they are so dedicated, and we use kind of like our networks and our connections. Uh, we also have our wonderful trustees and um, steering committee as well. So, for example, our chair of um, Water Sprites is Hilary Bevan Jones former head of BAFTA and um, herself and like the whole trustees and the whole steering committee have been so helpful and so amazing with guidance and helping us kind of get in touch with people and um, people I think especially with the world opening up are so keen to get back into it and to get lots of people kind of back interested in the film and get the industry up and going again. 
you mentioned you know getting back up and running and obviously I, th I think you had a year out last year is, is that correct so last year what we had is we had a completely online festival mm -hmm. so we still had lots and lots of events going on we still had the films and the screenings going on but due to the pandemic it was entirely online and um, we used kind of like a software where people can register and then access for the whole weekend um, this year what we're doing is that we're making it a hybrid festival because whilst the world is opening up again um, unfortunately it can be quite difficult to coordinate international travel and because our nominees are so international um, we didn't want to make anything kind of unfair by only inviting some nominees not inviting all of them because you know we are dedicated to kind of making it as accessible as possible for everybody involved not just for a select few. So I mean, you mentioned there that this is making it something that everyone can take part in, and that's why you've got this sort of hybrid program. And it's a really, as we talked about earlier, it's a global festival. It's very diverse. There's something for everyone. And it sounds like, it, you know, you're making, you're working really hard to make this an inclusive festival as well. How important is it to have something of this scale supporting student filmmakers and really, you know, people who are up and coming in this industry right here in Cambridge? I think it's so important, um, not just for students in Cambridge, studying in Cambridge, but I think all, like all over the world, um, it's such like a massive boost because I think many film festivals can be very costly and they can, um, like if people can incur financial costs, that means they won't be able to kind of like get as involved as they would like to. Because what's this right, we act as a charity, everything we do is from donation only. So like everything we organise is completely for free. So it means that people can like get involved without having to pay a single penny, which is like absolutely wonderful because there's many situations where things can feel a lot more restrictive because you have to put money into kind of reap any benefits. Um, so I think um, like in um, years where we've been not been affected by COVID um, so much, so for example, for the 2020 festival, just before the <laughs> pandemic really took hold, that was back in um, early March, um, we would normally get the nominees out here and pay for their flights and pay for their accommodation as well. Um, so I think, I mean, that in itself is such, such a brilliant opportunity. But I think being a student filmmaker is really tough because you know, when you're young, it can be, it can almost seem very daunting because you're stepping into this industry and it feels like everyone's got lots of experience, everyone's got lots of ideas, you're not sure where, what you're really doing, you're not sure if like your work is like up to like their professional standard. And I think what was right does quite well is that it shows like the quality of these films shows that there's some really exciting and amazing stuff coming out of the next generation. And it's just like, it's so, it's such an honour to be part of it and be like, to be able to kind of see this coming through. And that's great. And it sounds like it's really exciting. Loads and loads happening. Can you just remind our listeners if they want to get involved, if they want to attend one of the events or see one of the film screenings, where do they need to go? Absolutely. Um, if you'd like to at attend any events in person, please do go to our Eventbrite page. All of our events are happening in the Old Divinity School, and um, that's like part of St John's College. Um, and our screenings are all happening, in the in-person screenings are all happening at the Cambridge Arts Picture House. Um, and if you'd like to join kind of online, if you're not able to get down in person, we do have um, on our website, we do have ways you can get involved online as well through our online platform. Um, so our website also contains our festival program as well, where you can kind of see all the events we have for the festival weekend. Our website is watersprite.org.uk. That's watersprite.org.uk. Thank you very much. Majola, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It sounds like this is going to be a really fantastic event. I wish you and the team the absolute best of luck with it. And thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Cambridge 105 Radio.
Wake Up on Cambridge 105 Radio with Julian Clover. Just too dangerous. And Lucy Malazzo. I need to talk about marmalade and bacon. I'm doing that after the headlines. Cambridge Breakfast brings you all the day's need-to-know information. From the Cambridge News Desk at 8. Great guests. So they've got mathematics anxiety. That's exactly what me and Julian need. <laughs> and the best fun to start your day. I love Roman numerals. I think they're fabulous. I don't know what it is. Plus, sage wisdom. Back in the day, it was possible to tear a £1 note in half, go to the bank and get 50 pence for it. Listen to Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover. Really? And Lucy Malazzo. Really? Monday to Thursday morning from 7 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Just your average night. Fraser's upstairs gaming online with his mates. Sophie's streaming her favourite tunes in her bedroom. Mum's downloading the latest drama box set. And Dad's liking kitten videos on his phone. But this isn't your average night. Thanks to City Fibre's full fibre network, everyone's gaming, streaming and scrolling at breakneck speed. Join Cambridge's gigabit revolution today. Head to cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio thanks again to yossi for that interview with majola akinyemi from the water sprite festival and remember that's going on right here this weekend right we've got about uh, 25 minutes left and we've still got three films to cover so I think it's time for lovelorn poets to try and make their voices heard He's here Cyrano Cyrano Pleasure to meet you Cyrano de Bergerac You're a freak Freak friend I'd be very angry with you if you died my sole purpose on this earth is to love Roxanne does she know the world will never accept someone like me and a tall beautiful woman we have no money a clever marriage is your only option I won't be rescued I'm not in distress love does that mean nothing to you children need love adults need money I need something to die for Written in 1897, Edmond Rostand's classic French play Cyrano de Bergerac is famous, I found out, for introducing the word panache into the English language. But also, it's pretty famous for being a work which has been frequently adapted. So this latest version of the sensitive warrior poet Cyrano and his misrequited love for Roxanne stars Peter Dinklage and Hayley Bennett and is a musical adaptation for the first time with songs from The National. Directed by Joe Wright, renowned for 21st century friendly period pieces Pride and Prejudice and The Darkest Hour, this should be a surefire hit. Yossi, 
as you've seen this one this year, I'm going to come to you. Um, this is the first musical adaptation of Cyrano. How did you feel it stood up? We'll ask, first of all, as a musical. We'll move on to how we feel it is as a film, but what about as a musical? Well, I think Cyrano looks very... Sorry, I didn't mean to say it like that, but Cyrano looks very good. But um, it, as a musical... If you're expecting what you think is a typical musical, I'm not sure that Cyrano will meet those expectations. It's one of those films that I think is just really... It, it looks stunning. It, Peter Dinklage is doing his absolute best and there were parts of it that I enjoyed, but I think it's missing that spark, that that effort that makes it something a little bit more extraordinary than what it is. And if you're asking about, is it a musical? It didn't really feel like a musical to me. It felt like a film. I, I hate to say this, but it felt like a film with songs in it, which probably is a musical, but it just didn't have the kind of, um, the kind of thing I would expect. So I think there are things to like about it. I, I don't think I hate it as much as some of my colleagues may say in a few moments, but it's just, it, it's missing something for me. Well, fair enough. I mean, it's a melodrama, so you are meant to be moved by it. And I must say, I was resolutely unmoved throughout the entire thing. Lorcan, did you find it moving at all? Like I say, you know, this is a famous, you know, this is a famous melodrama. It's a tragedy. It, it should, you know, it, it should awake all kinds of emotions in us. Well, I think, yeah, there's, the performances are all weirdly kind of stale, though. I think... Um, as you mentioned that there's kind of something missing to like elevate it but I think when you're doing a musical everything has to everything has to come together like perfectly and I think everything for me was just kind of off like the costumes weren't great and the sets weren't great and uh, Peter Dinklage sounded very auto-tuned to me and and um, like you said about the emotion it's the cliche is that people sing in a musical whenever uh, they get so emotionally overwhelmed they can't say it with words anymore so they have to sing and this is just like Haley Bennett will be sitting in a car and then out of nowhere she'll just start singing about something and it's, it seems all the songs seem kind of just plucked out of nowhere and so it's, it's emotionally kind of confusing um, there's not a lot of poetry from what I remember uh, for a film that's in intrinsically about a poet um, and then Ben, Mel ben, ben, ben Mendelsohn was in it for five minutes, I think. I can't remember. I think, I think Ben Mendelsohn is, even in, is in even more danger. You mentioned Colin Farrell and how worried you are that he just, he's just scared, but he has so much fun with it. Ben Mendelsohn, it seems like he's just being cast as creepy whispering baddie in everything, which is such a shame because he is my fake husband in in my life but anyway no, more Sorry, of that I, I was just I think he's just there to you know he's there for the check basically it just felt like he wasn't giving everything to it that we would expect from Ben Mendelsohn. Not to get distracted, though, but I feel Ben Mendelsohn's doing that an awful lot. Maybe he has a mortgages to pay for or an expensive divorce or something, I don't know. But, Vicky, are you, have you seen other adaptations? Have you seen, for example, the Gerard Depardieu version or Roxanne from the 80s with um, Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah famously? Have you seen any other adaptations of Cyrano? No adaptations at all. So <laughs> you were new like, to this, yeah. new to the story? Yeah, absolutely, completely. And you, obviously, I know that the famous, the look that he's meant to have and I, so I was quite surprised when this trailer got released I was also kind of surprised it was even happening and then obviously you, you're talking about Ben Mendelsohn there but he was a, probably his solo was maybe the, the funniest five minutes of this like the film for me I had a great <laughs> uh, like saying this it is it's not our favorite film 
Um, but it, I had a good time because it was so hilariously bad. <laughs> and and it's all, like in like the way that they were trying to perform it. Uh, the, you were saying about the song's placement about how they come out of nowhere. And I think I'm a big fan of The National and I just feel that The National, I, d I didn't know they were going to get into films, but I feel like because they're a band rather than like maybe a composer, it just didn't, it wasn't seamless. And the songs are, they're kind of okay on their own. Like I could listen to them on a general basis, but they're not musical based. And yeah, this is an interesting film to have come out recently. Yeah, it had a really odd feel to me. I think I, I I thought that parts of it, it looked like it was styled like kind of 80s, like 1980s music videos. There were bits in this that looked like Meatloaf videos or The Phantom of the Opera or even Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. I thought maybe Joe Wright was actually giving us a, a shout out to that secretly to mm -hmm. those who are fans. It had a very odd production style. I just think um, Vicky's hit the nail on the head a little bit about what this film is missing because it works to some degree. You have songs that you could listen to but it doesn't work as a musical you have a love story but it doesn't really work as a romance film and I'm thinking that whole package it's just it's a little bit fragmented and that's why it's not really selling it to people I think as a film well I think it's an interesting point as well because famously obviously Cyrano the play and Cyrano all the other film adaptations that the thing that stands in his way or he feels is standing in his way from Roxanne loving him is his enormous nose this is and obviously they in this they've deliberately not gone with the nose but instead they've cast a small person Peter Dinklage in it and that's meant to be the reason but I, it doesn't seem you know because Peter Dinklage is a very handsome man to be honest and a very charming man and I don't it doesn't the, the, the logic the logic behind her not being in love with him doesn't really stand up I didn't think I don't think there's any logic in it really sorry No, I, I think I, it feels like Peter Dinklage may have been a last minute uh, in, introduction because it, it feels like they didn't really write any of the film around him being a little person instead of just having a big nose. Like if you if you cast someone else with just a big nose, you don't really have to change any of the dialogue or anything. Um, so I don't know if it was a last minute like, oh, he's a name, we can get him in. It'll be like a unique a unique kind of twist on things. Um, so that casting choice ends up being kind of uh, well a little confusing for me. I think that I would have liked Peter Dinklage plays it. He plays it to me. Peter Dinklage played it like an angry kind of New York film like drama graduate like he was just kind of grumpy and angry the whole time and it's like but you're supposed to be like this like lovely yeah he's supposed to be like a little um kind of miffed at the world but you still have to have something that he's got this like dreamer inside of him that can only be expressed through his words but he's just kind of grumpy the whole time and picking fights um and like, he murders someone in the next next scene he's singing a song and it's like okay I, don't, I have no idea who this guy is and i don't really like him very much it, it was very hard for me to break away I, it just seemed to me he was playing it as Tyrion in game but as Cyrano, it was, I just think, a thoroughly odd film. And I think that maybe Joe Wright, you know, obviously he made Atonement, he made Pride and Prejudice, he made The Darkest Hour. These have all been incredibly plaudited. Cyrano itself is up, I think, for several BAFTAs. But his last film was The Woman in the Window, which was pretty horrendous. So do we, I, I don't, I, I think from this, I think maybe Joe Wright has lost his way a little bit. I only have one positive from the film, and that is the costume design in this is very, very beautiful. And um, I think the costume design has worked with the music element quite well especially with the billowy sleeves so that was another that was another thing and maybe if Joe Wright has lost his touch the people around him are still doing the best that they can well let's end on a positive note that is Cyrano it is a certificate 12A I believe and it is showing at the light and 
I think that, and it's still showing it in the picture house and the picture house. It's showing it light in the picture house. So if you fancy a, a gentle musical with a very abrupt ending and no emotional welly whatsoever, then be my guest. Go ahead. <laughs> Right, moving on. What's going to happen when everyone's favourite rock band makes their latest album in a possessed studio? Foo Fighters! You gotta get me a record. It's our 10th album. We're going to break the mold on this one. Let's go somewhere we've never been. This place is amazing. Do you guys get this overwhelming sense of death? Whoa. Doesn't really seem like the right fit. Whoa, that's rad. That was weird. The sound of this house is the sound of album 10. All right, all right, you guys. Amps, living room. Let me apologize in advance for all the rock we're about to make. Got a couple of ideas I've been working on. I'll lay them on you. called Everlong, and you wrote it about 20 years ago. Based on a story by Dave Grohl and filmed before the pandemic, I believe, Studio 666 is the story of the Foo Fighters trying to record their highly anticipated 10th album in an Encino mansion, which just so happens to be steeped in gory rock history. Stu, I'm pretty sure you're a Foo Fighters fan, um, and I think you're a, are you a horror fan as well? Not so much a horror fan, but the fact that it's the Foo Fighters was enough to draw me in. So did it entertain you? I was very entertained. It was, um, I, I, I love Foo Fighters. Anyone who knows me knows I love Foo Fighters, but everyone who knows me also knows I love Foo Fighters. I've never seen them live, so I thought I'd go and see the film to go and try and sort of do justice to this terrible misdeed. But, um, yeah, if I had to summarise it in a word, I would say it's stupid. <laughs> but it's stupid fun. Um, it's really, really, yeah, it's, they, they, they know... They know what they're capable of. They know what they're doing. They're making a film, like a feature-length film, like they're making one of their music videos. And if you've seen any of the Foo Fighters um, music videos, they're always silly, they're always daft, but they're always fun. And they've taken that and presumably a love of horror movies and just sort of thrown together this passion project. Um, Dave Grohl's written the story. And, and, and it's just... It's it's a it's a good bit of fun. I mean, how, what's the post of running time? It's an hour and a half, something like that. Yeah, it's short and sweet. Short and sweet. So yeah, it's, it doesn't it doesn't over overstay its sort of welcome sort of thing. It it does what it says in the tin. It's it's a silly rock film. <laughs> Vicky, was it is it scary? I mean, it's it's it's. I had a, I jumped movie once. I think uh, so. I am a horror fan. I'm a massive Foo Fighters fan. They definitely know who their fans are with this. We were in like a re- mean studio and a really fun audience. Just tons of laughs and like even when the the certificate rating came up and you was like extreme gore. Um, they literally everyone was just like, this is what we came for. This is what we want from it. And uh, like uh, she was also saying, like this is just like a very long fun music video. Um, Take that as you will. It is. Uh, it's not the best film that's no. going to come out this week or in the next few weeks. But it has, you know, it is made for. They have a giant fan base, and it is made for those kind of people. And 
uh, is it a good horror film? Not, not really uh, at all. But uh, am I still laughing at the trailer now? Yes, I, uh, I, I'm quite, yeah, I was quite, a, I'm quite in love with it a little bit. And uh, they definitely have casted some interesting side characters along with themselves. Um, if you go back, like you have uh, Jenna Ortega, who's becoming the new resident Scream Queen. Uh, she was in the new Scream, and she has a, a very nice three minutes in this. Um, I. Yeah, I think uh, she's got a very good career coming with her and they've chosen her very correctly to just elevate the film in those key moments. And, uh, yeah. I'm just looking down the cast list and I note that Lionel Richie is in it. As Lionel <laughs> Richie. I'm, I am a huge fan of Lionel Richie. Kind of showing my age there, more of my, Ameri- <laughs> my I'm a huge American Idol fan. But was he, uh, yeah, I mean, these these cameos in it, like Will Forte as well, it, were they, are they all nicely played? Are they nicely measured? Will Forte, definitely, yeah. He is, he is probably one of the best side characters of the film. Um, they, yeah, they are all nicely played. They all have, like, the, like, trope characters. Like, he plays the delivery driver and what's going to happen to him at this haunted mansion. And, yeah, uh, they definitely is a tropey horror film, but... It works, and you know the 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 gore is definitely there. Oh, yeah, if we if we go by the certificate rating, it's not a scary film as such, but the gore is 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 th- is a thing of wonders. It's yeah. very creative. I mean, there the obviously wasn't much of a budget committed to this film. They they didn't have a lot of money to play with, but some of the what I don't know if it's even CGI if it even qualifies as CGI when they use it is really really bad like you've got some sort of shadow demons with red faces but then you can see where they spent the money they spent it on animatronics and gore and and, and just yeah and blood effects and it's uh it it it, it looks <laughs> cheap and cheerful if you can use those words to describe yeah. gore effects in films okay this so- No, the film in general is actually based around just one song. Obviously, they're making their 10th album, so Mm. they go to this mansion to record it. But it's based on this one song that they're all trying to create. So the film is just, it is a lot of music based as well, which is like great anyway. But it's uh, this one song throughout the film, it's called March of the Insane, I think. And I have not stopped listening to it since. Like, I've played it. It's quite heavy, but I've been playing it through breakfast. It is definitely placed it really well and yeah yes in the context of the film march of the insane it's obviously by the few fighters in the in the real world or by dave Grohl. but in the context of the film it's made by uh, another a band who inhabited the house before them and uh, unfortunately miss demeanors befell them and uh, they never finished the song and so through the horror element of the film dave Grohl becomes possessed and is encouraged to finish this evil song. This 48 minute song. 48 minute song. <laughs> so, is this new music then that they've made for it? As oh, well, so then? actually, the, the music is, uh, this song I don't think is by, it's by the band Dream Widow in the film, and it's actually by the band Dream Widow in real life. Ah. It's, a, a new, it's kind of, they're a new metal band. I don't know if Dave just supports them really well, but <laughs> he's centered the whole film around it. So, I don't, I don't quite know how that happened, but yeah, it's a lot of, as well as this one band that he seems to be pulling up. Is the reincarnation of like a lot of good Foo Fighter oldies and hits that just like centers you throughout. 
I mean, I must admit, I haven't, I've, in, in full disclosure, I have not seen this. I think it's also quite hard to track down in the cinemas anyway. It's, it's showing pretty limited because everyone's watching The yeah. Duke, obviously. I think because if you put out any 18 film nowadays, it's only gonna, it's only gonna get evening showings, you know, really late. And it's probably on one show in a day, I think. But it's, uh, it was a really good audience. They've chosen that time slot quite yeah. well. I mean, yeah, I- and Dave, I mean, well, I, but I can, I mean, Dave Grohl seems to me one of the most charming men in show business anyway. So I'm yeah. pleased to hear that this is, a genuinely fun film and not just a sort of slightly overblown vanity project. Yeah, and, and just to end on the subject of audiences, I mean, I, I really enjoyed sitting with the, the audience for Studio 666. Um, everyone was on board for the ride. Just to go back to my viewing of the Batman, though, I had to do a personal plea to audiences returning to cinemas in mass. Please don't talk through films. We had... Oh, a row of people talking behind us through the entire screening of the Batman that I saw, and it, and it, and it really... Ruin the experience for a lot of people. <laughs> that is really disappointing. Can I ask one question? Did anyone tell them off during the film, though? Oh, no, but there were certainly some expletives exchanged at the end. <laughs> You've got to tell them off during the film. My mother was excellent at that. She would stand up and turn around and scream at people. I was always so embarrassed, but it used to work a treat. People do <laughs> 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 OK, so that's Studio 666, and I think we're getting, a ra- we're getting a really rousing review there from both Stu and Vicky. So if you can try and find it, and you are obviously 18 or above, because it is a certificate 18, then please try and track it down it's showing at the light limited screenings only though right it's hard to believe but we are on the last film for today and we are heading over to Bradford for some romance come on get in you into music yeah, I like country music, me. Oh, that's it then. I'll pull up, shall I? <laughs> no, you must like something else. I like folk. Folk, getting worse. Come on. <laughs> yes! Right. How do you know Sophia's family? They're my tenants, but we've got mates. Kids here around. Yeah, I've got four. Four? Who's <sighs> that? He's a friend. A fella. Three, two, one, go. go. Clio Barnard has followed up the Arbor and the Selfish Giant, but she's sticking to her sort of her, her modus operandi, if you like, which is a semi-autobiographical story. Well, no, sorry, so semi-biographical in that she bases the characters on people that she has known in real life. So Ali and Ava, who are both lonely for different reasons, played by Adil Akhtar and Claire, 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 Claire Rushbrook. Claire Rushbrook, thank you. You'll see. Claire Rushbrook, meet and sort of sparks fly, and over a lunar month, this connection begins to grow between them and, and Ali and Ava tells the story of this with also, you know, how it's, how it's affecting the people around them. Lorcan and Vicky, you've both seen this. I think I'm going to start with Lorcan because I think you were fonder of it than Vicky was, perhaps. So, um, tell me what you liked about this. Are you a fan of Clio Barnard's uh, Barnard work before this? Um, I'm una- I'm, I am unaware of um, her work before this film. Um, I watched it during the um, Cambridge Film Festival a few months ago. Um, and there are, there are quite a few moments that kind of stick in my head. There's lots of very sweet moments where... Uh, it's been, uh, it's, oh, I don't know how you describe it, May-October romance. So it's like a, a younger guy and a, an older lady, and they come from very different cultures, and there's clashes there within the families, but um, they're kind of 
uh, Ali's very uh, affable and likable. Uh, Ava's really kind of, she's a little put upon. She's dealing with kind of more emotionally, but they both kind of mix their worlds together in like lots of cute scenes. Um, so it is effective. Like it, like it could have been a Duke where they just kind of target a very niche kind of market and they kind of write off everything else. But they really do try to build these characters, um, make them realistic, um, give them memorable scenes together, memorable meet cutes that um, are grounded and relatable. Uh, and it is a little transported if you do feel like you're going into um, kind of up north uh, into this tiny little kind of community and you're just getting a glimpse into this relationship. So I would say cute is the key word from it. Um, short and sweet as well. Yeah, again, only an hour and 35 minutes. We're making up. You see, we've got the Batman this week, but everything else, I think, is sub sub two hours. Vicky, did you enjoy this? Uh, so you, you were talking about the runtime, an hour and 35. I honestly thought I was in there for around about two hours. I, it just was... It, it kept dragging for me I don't know I mean Adil Akhtar was incredible I was just very fond of how charismatic he is on screen he brings back like a really good presence um I just I just didn't see the need for this to be a film maybe I didn't like I understand it's a it's a romance that like kind of takes people by surprise but also like it's just like every it's just another romance story it's doesn't really add much to it it has like a few dramatic events but they aren't really that dramatizing on the screen and i just yeah it's kind of melancholy with it yeah did you enjoy the music i think the music is quite a thing in this film isn't it because they they have very test different tastes in music they have this scene where they're both yeah. listening to their own music on their headphones so you know but but they are dancing together if you like a bit like a silent disco i guess but um yeah was how how were the sort of aspects around it did it feel like it was improvised does it feel very tightly scripted it, it feels fairly tightly scripted i didn't it didn't drag it all for me um but yeah the um the the mixing of cultures was kind of like uh, something that drives their romance and drives their families kind of further away from each other. And like you said, there's this a bit where they listen to each other's music. We don't necessarily hear exactly what they're listening to, but we get the vibe. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's um, it's just quite heartwarming. Uh, it's it's maybe a story we've seen before, but I mean, it increases visibility of like mixed race couples. It increases vis- visibility of kind of... Uh, couples with age gaps and so that's for me that was like unique and I hadn't seen that necessarily in a while and it's not it's not West Side Story it's not warring clans it's just very it's very domestic and all the problems that comes with their relationship are feel very believable if potentially a little melodramatic here and there but I love a bit of melodrama so I'm fine with that well you know because otherwise you could just be living your own life couldn't you? you've got to go you've got to go for escapism okay so Ali and Ava is a certificate 15 and is showing at the picture house and I think it sounds. I think I quite. I, I like the sound of that. I'm, again, I haven't. I haven't had a chance to see it, but I, I like the sound of it, and I, I think it sounds charming. Right. So that's the end of another show. We'll be back in two weeks when we will be discussing Red Rocket, huge Nordic hit, the worst person in the world, which feels like it's been hanging around for ages, finally getting a UK release after being sort of a, the, the festival darling, and also turning red, the new Disney Pixar animated which i'm also very excited about so please do join us again in a couple of weeks um enjoy your day now and we are going to play out with a little bit of everlong by the foo fighters have a great day thanks for listening goodbye bye bye Bye. Bye. cambridge 105 radio